few, uh, few people around me going, I'm glad I'm not preaching on that passage. <laughs> They're all a bit like that from here on in. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. It's great. Clear some space. So, here we are. Title this morning, The Antidote to Our Celebrity Culture. And uh, I wonder what it is that provokes us to pick up Hello Magazine in the doctor's surgery. In fact, it's really disappointing now, because I've only got sensible magazines in the doctor's surgery, at least the doctors I go to. Can you sort that, Kirsty? Yeah, thanks. <laughs> what is it? What is it that's within us that, that makes us kind of gravitate to these magazines and just, just I mean, n none of us own up to actually purchasing them. But when they're, when they're there for free, what is it that makes us go, oh, I'll, I'll just have a look, oh, that sounds interesting. We know that the headlines on the front are complete and utter rubbish, but we still, or we follow some internet trend that comes up on our Facebook feed and sounds kind of more interesting than what we're supposed to be doing at the time. We just like to see, don't we, what the latest celebrity gossip is. What's that all about? I think some of it's just uh, around being in the know, isn't it? Just when other people mention Justin Bieber, you can sort of nod. <laughs> Something about that. Something about a kind of fantasy thing where sometimes we're a bit starved of excitement in our own lives, so we kind of live off somebody else's life. Because it's not just a recent thing, though it has grown massively and is more extreme. But even when Hollywood, you know, started, there were those movie stars with their beautiful gowns and makeup, and that was just the men. Their amazing storylines, their romantic encounters, and people wanted to be like them. Now, of course, we can even be a celebrity, can't we? What's X Factor about and all these other reality shows if it's not about being a celebrity? And they stand there on the stage and they say, I want this more than anything else in my whole entire life. This means more to me than anything else has ever done. This is the greatest moment. And they've got through the first round. <laughs> being a celebrity may be more important than why you are one. And that's perhaps what's changed significantly over this last little while. Obviously, I've been thinking about this this week, and I came across this quite helpful um, description around celebrity. There are three kinds of celebrity. Ascribed celebrities are those who are famous because of their lineage, and this young man here would sort of be an example of that. Prince Harry, people like that who are famous, who are celebrity because of who they are, their family, their position in society. Then there are achieved celebrities, those who become famous because of their talent and skill in a particular field. And an example of that could be Jessica Ennis-Hill. These are the kind of people that I think we have most time for, actually. We kind of get, well, they worked hard to get there. They, they trained or they practiced or they learned and, and they've achieved that. And so in some measure, we find that a bit more acceptable. And then there are these ones, attributed celebrities are those who become famous by attracting a lot of media attention or by being associated with multiple celebrities. These are people who are famous simply for being famous. 
And uh, maybe Kim Kardashian is a good example of that. And even if you don't know who she is, you've probably heard of the Kardashians, even if you don't know who they are. And they are famous simply for being famous, I think. So I'm not quite sure how you achieve that. It seems a bit of a circular thing to me, but anyway, there we go. So here we have it, a celebrity culture. And like many of the isms that Phil mentioned last week, celebrityism has thoroughly permeated our culture. It can be defined like this. Celebrity culture is defined as the set of cultural attitudes and practices that revolve around the production of celebrities. Recently, it has been used more and more to describe the social impact that the celebrity world has upon the general public. But it is also concerned about the business-like aspects of the production and consumption of celebrities. I mean, that last phrase, the production and consumption of celebrities. This is our culture, consumerist to its core. Of course, the truth is that that influence also affects or potentially affects our Christian culture, doesn't it? And not only is there the lure of celebrity, but the lure of Christian celebrity. We have speakers who can speak at mega conferences, and I mean mega. And not only are they speaking to the people in front of them, but through media to millions and whatever they say is recorded and you can watch it later. So they can reach so many people through what they do. Please don't hear me saying anything negative about that particularly because that's not about the speaker. It's about the reality of what can occur now. They have TV channels so you can be on all of the time. Not only are we talking about speakers, but worship leaders, and in some respects, worship leaders have more capacity for becoming celebrities because of the music dynamic than speakers do. They can be increasingly produced. They're very large venues. You need to be able to communicate in a certain way. There's a buzz and an adulation that can surround those people. Most of them have books or CDs or podcasts or things to promote that you can buy. If we're not careful, we can stop assessing what people do or say by the scriptures and simply believe because the people themselves become so big and significant. I was reading an article about this this week and one of the challenges was actually not to them but to us. And it says this, we're cultivating monsters. Whose fault is it that this person, whoever they might be, becomes so big? Is it theirs maybe? Or is it us? Do we like to put people up there? Do we like to create that celebrity? Do we like to idolize people and have a kind of a clique around who those people are? Do we like that? It's what we do in the rest of our lives. It's what we do in the church. If we're not careful, we replace our relationship with God himself for the interrupted relationship through a celebrity person, whether they be a worship leader a speaker or a writer or whoever is your favorite person. There's also a challenge here. If we want to know where we are on this scale, how do we cope or react when our celebrity fails? 
So it's a good measure of where you are in that reality. Because if when someone that you've put on a pedestal fails, you are crumpled up and destroyed, and I have watched that happen to people, then they are between you and God, aren't they? It doesn't mean don't feel disappointed or or sad or or whatever. But what happens within you? Because people lose their faith. There are catastrophic effects of hypocrisy when leaders become so big that the integrity of their lives and what they're saying is inconsistent. We have to recognize human frailty, don't we? Phil and I have um, more recently... Uh, much to our surprise, really, <laughs> started saying something to people that come into the church on occasions. Because sometimes, and this is the bit that shocks us, we, apparently we seem quite shiny to people, and they, and they think that we're quite perfect. I, I, it's really quite hard for me to say that, because it just seems so unreal. <laughs> and people are lovely, and some of the things they say about us and about the church are really lovely. And so... On occasions, we've started saying to people, we will let you down. Seems a really odd thing to say, doesn't it? We will let you down. Do not put your faith in us. Actually, don't put your faith in this church either. It's got to be in Jesus. We are frail and human. We won't try to do that, but we will. The next few chapters of Corinthians are pretty hard. How do you react when somebody that you have really looked up to, you've read all their stuff, you've heard all their talks and whatever, how do you react when they say something that you don't agree with anymore? How do you deal with that when when someone that you've gone, oh, I can definitely rely on them because they always agree with everything they say. What do you do when they say something that conflicts with what you think? Do you knock them off their pedestal and put them in the bin? Do you change your view to fit in with theirs? Because that's an issue, isn't it? They are so amazing that your view changes to fit in theirs. Do you assess what they're saying by the word of God, with your conversation with other people, with a level of discernment? And then can you deal with the fact that you might not agree? Can you deal with the fact that you might not agree with what Phil and I say over the next few weeks? That's got to give you something to worry about, hasn't it? <laughs> God is invisible, you may have noticed. So we have and can have a tendency to follow and focus on our physically present leaders. Makes sense, doesn't it? It's a bit easier sometimes. Of course, Paul writes and others within the New Testament significantly challenging the church to respect their leaders, to honor their leaders, to listen to their leaders. There is a high calling on leadership within the church. But the only person who is worthy of our devotion, of our worship, is Jesus. And we have to keep that in its right place, don't we? Celebrity culture. Is it a 21st century phenomenon? I really don't think it was. It seemed to have been an issue in Corinth too. These eloquent speakers who came in, the philosophers in the marketplace. I follow 
I follow. He's my favorite. No, you don't want to follow him. You want to go with him. And they came into the marketplace with their flowery speeches in praise of the city, using as many adjectives and adverbs as they could, lots of images and metaphors strung together to praise the city. And once they'd done that, then they praised themselves. How great am I? You should really listen to me. We should try that. Yeah. Celebrity appealed to the culture then as much as it appeals to ours. People wanted to follow celebrities. And then there's Paul. Or Paul and Apollos, really. Then there's Paul. I guess we make a lot of judgments, don't we, about people. And we need to use wisdom and discernment. That's appropriate as well as a balance to not judging people. When Paul says, I'm not eloquent, he doesn't mean that he can't speak well. Somebody who can write this kind of stuff, which is really quite challenging just to read, is wise and intelligent and able. And Paul was all of those things. But his confidence was not in those things, but in the cross of Jesus. He says, I'm not going to be like that. I'm not going to butter you up and I'm not going to praise myself because it's all about the cross of Christ. We need to make some discerning calls at, at times and Paul helps us with that in this first part of 1 Corinthians. He talks about what their role is. He says, we are servants. And that word in the Greek means under rower. Imagine those big ships that you see on films. I'm an under rower. I'm someone who's simply responding to a higher authority and doing my job. That is the call of an apostle. It's the call of a leader, actually. It's the call of the follower of Jesus Christ. To be a servant. He says not only are we servants, but stewards. Housekeepers, those entrusted with managing the affairs and resources of the house. Responsible to the Lord. We are responsible for the mysteries of God, for the truth of the cross. As a result, we are willing to be unpopular. We are willing to say hard things because it's not about being liked or being popular or being a celebrity, but about being faithful to the Lord himself and his calling. And that's what the character is, isn't it? Character of faithfulness and trustworthiness. If we can't see someone's character being consistent with the character of Jesus, then there's an issue. Because who we are is so important in the calling of God upon our lives. And then he talks about accountability. He says, human judgments are of little value. So it doesn't really matter whether you like me or you don't like me. It doesn't matter whether you think that I've given a good talk or not a good talk. It doesn't matter if you think that I'm of good stature or poor. It doesn't matter because we're so like this, aren't we, with our opinions. And some of you will like me and some of you won't. And how can we make an assessment based on any of that stuff so he says human judgment is really not of ultimate importance. He says even our self-evaluation is unreliable. Because often we 
are too harsh on ourselves. Oh, I'm not really much good at that kind of thing. I don't think I could do that. I'm, I'm not really the kind of person that God would choose to use. And you need people around you saying, yeah, you really are. But then sometimes we go the other way, don't we? We start to believe our own publicity. And that's a danger too. Paul says what's really important is at the end of time, we will have to give account to God. Well, I don't know how that makes you feel. I sometimes feel a little quaking in my boots when I think of that. He says, take care not to judge too negatively because that person will give account to God. And Kate, take care not to eulogize someone because you can't see in their heart and that person will give account to God because on that day God will expose the motives and inner reasons behind it all and ultimately it's his perspective that matters that's a difficult perspective isn't it to hold in a culture where popularity and position and success and celebrity is what matters so if we move on just a little bit to verses 8 to 13. Here's some light relief for you. If I were to give up sarcasm, that would leave interpretive dance as my only means of communicating. So it's written for me, I think. <laughs> and I'm not going to do interpretive dance. No, you really don't want me to. <laughs> no, 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 Rachel's doing it first. <laughs> Tone of voice is everything, isn't it? It's really everything. When somebody says the right things, but in the wrong tone, what we hear are the wrong things. And sometimes we can kind of mess up in the statement, but if we say it with the right tone, we hear the right things. Tone of voice is so, so important in communication. And it really helps if we can understand Paul's tone of voice. Now, you'll appreciate that's a little bit difficult, um, but those who know better than me have helped me to understand Paul's tone of voice. Because what Paul is doing here in this passage from verse 8 is he's being really quite sarcastic, at the very least ironic, although I'm not really quite sure what the difference is. But anyway, he's taking that kind of tone with them. He's saying this, Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. You've become kings. And even without us, well done. How I wish that you'd really become kings so that we could be kings with you. You've got to hear what he's saying. He's trying to engage them a little bit differently. Come in at a different angle with them because they're not really listening to him. Already you're filled. You're rich. You're kings. Already. He really stresses that word. Already you've got everything. It's all sorted. He says, I wish that that was completely true because then we could have a great life as well. Don't we wish that we already have everything that's available to us in Christ, in the kingdom of God? Every healing, every freedom from things that chain us, every restoration 
everything perfect. But I guess that's not, not, not all of our realities. Because we live in that tension, don't we? Between what is our experience of the kingdom of God now, what is, and what is yet to come when it will all be fulfilled. And we pray for more experience of the kingdom of God, but the reality is that until the end time, we won't know that completely. Paul says, you say you've got everything. You're already kings. You're already ruling. They were proud. They claimed to be spiritually rich. At the heart of their boasting was the conviction that they were a very successful, lively, mature, and effective church. The Christians were satisfied with their spirituality, their leadership, and the general quality of their life together. They had settled down into the illusion that they had become the best they could ever be. They thought that they had arrived. They were front page on the church's Hello magazine. And if ever we need a warning shot across our bowels... It's to remember that we've never arrived. That whatever we have is a gift from God. It's all about his grace. Every level of success that we might have is small and is a gift of God. We still have a long way to go. And it's not about us and it's not about our pride and it's not about our boasting. It's all about Jesus. But the Corinthian church thought that they were fine, thank you very much. And when you think you're fine, you stop listening. And that's why Paul comes along with this kind of sarcastic tone. and says, well, you're obviously fine, and you're fine without me. But look at me. Look at Apollos. Because you might have arrived, but we haven't. You might think you're strong, but I am all too aware of my weakness. You might glory in your reputation and respectability in worldly society, but I am mocked and scorned by this world. Phil was challenging us last week to think about the gospel as culturally irrelevant. Not that it's not relevant to our culture, but that it has to stand apart from it. Does that risk us being unpopular? Yeah, of course it does. Does it risk us being scorned and mocked? Yes, of course it does. Does it risk us being more marginalized as time goes on? Yes, it does. Paul gives them this picture and says, we feel we are like the captives at the end of a triumphal procession led by a Roman general into Rome on the back of a great victory. We are being paraded in bedraggled and humiliated in chains, dragged along, sentenced to death. That's what we feel like we are. He says, we are fools for Christ. But you are so wise. We are weak. But you are strong. You are honoured. We are dishonoured. And he says, if you want to see what a real apostle looks like, then look at us. These are the authentic marks of Christian ministry. He says, we are physically deprived. We are hungry, we are thirsty, we are badly clothed, we are roughly treated, we are homeless, and we endure hard labor. 
we are insulted. And yet in return for those insults, we bless. We are persecuted, but we endure. We are slandered, but we speak gently in return. And in case we haven't got the message, he says, we are the scum of the earth, the refuse of society, of the world. I mean, there's not a lower place to go than that, is there? If we need an antidote to our celebrity culture, then surely that's it. And it's a challenge, isn't it? A challenge particularly to us, a church in the West, and whether we take Australia or New Zealand or America or the UK, the church can be quite successful, is quite successful. We can, we can hold on to that celebrity. We can have status and position and adulation and books and podcasts and all the rest of it. That danger is there for the church in the West. And yet, what does God take? He takes the poor. He takes the persecuted. He takes the marginalized. And his church grows. His church grows as he pours out grace and grace upon them. We cannot just stop being how we are, but we need to be wise and make sure that we don't stand on our own pedestals but only give, take the things that God has given to us. And then at the end of this passage, verses 14 to 21, again, he t- changes his tone of voice. Maybe he feels that they, they are listening now. Perhaps the fact that he's called himself the scum of the earth <laughs> might have got their attention. And he says in verse 14, I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you. I'm not saying this to make you squirm in your seats and wish that you were poorer. Or wish that life was more difficult for a Christian in the UK. We should just be grateful that it isn't just yet. I'm not doing this to make you feel wretched, but to warn you because I care about you. And the way it's translated in the NIV is, even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. Well, another way of translating it could be this. You have many babysitters. You have many babysitters, but not many fathers. I'm sure many of you have had babysitters at one point in your life. (laughs) And many of you have been babysitters. We used to love it when babysitters came round. We especially love certain babysitters. The ones where we could say, oh, yes, mommy and daddy let us watch this program every week. Remember the first time uh, Claire and Julie Taggart, I don't think Julie's here this morning, uh, babysat for our kids. And uh, we came back from wherever it was that we were. And, um, and Claire said to us, oh, well, well, they came downstairs. Mm-hmm. Yes, this is to be expected, isn't it? They came downstairs and they said, oh, we're always allowed at least one biscuit before we go to bed. <laughs> so Claire, being a lovely person, said, oh, are you sure? And they, because the kids went, yes, yeah, of course, we're sure. She said, so I let them have a couple of chocolate biscuits before they went to bed. Guess who the favourite babysitters were? (laughs) See, babysitters, 
are great. But they're transient, aren't they? They have, generally speaking, limited involvement. There is limited personal sacrifice. In fact, I strongly remember uh, the key thing about deciding whether I was going to babysit for another family or not being the quality of the biscuits that they would have. <laughs> By the way, I still like that if you ever need me. Um, there's limited personal sacrifice, isn't there? You may have to deal with something if you're lucky, you watch telly all evening. And if it gets really bad, you call the parents. You know, it's limited. And it's a succession of different people. Guardians is a little bit more than that, but I think Guardians perhaps has a different meaning for us. These were normally a slave within the family who was respected. He would take the children to their school or whatever. It was a little bit more like a babysitter than what we would maybe consider as a guardian. You've got many people like that, many people who, who like you, who care about you, who'll look after you, your well-being in a kind of general sense. But you don't have many fathers You don't have many fathers. Now, I know that there are people here who've not had a good experience of fatherhood. And so when they read these kind of words, actually, not, it's not a really constructive sentence. But just bear with me, because I think that what Paul is talking about here is a good father, kind of an ideal. Because a father is permanent. A father should be a permanent fixture. A father is involved. A father, or a mother for that matter, is sacrificial. You know when there's only one bit of cake left and the kids want it and you go, okay, well you have it then. And other much more significant things. When you're up all night, when you're there when the child is sick and you feel rubbish too, when it's a choice of who to spend the money on. You give, don't you? A father and mother walks with you through the experiences of your life. Sometimes, as parents, those experiences we walk with with our children are very difficult. A good parent is willing to speak loving truth. A good parent cares enough to challenge and confront, to correct and to warn. A good parent is prepared to be unpopular for the well-being of their child. See the difference between a babysitter and a parent? Paul says, you haven't got many fathers. He said, I, I have become a father to you. Okay, he pioneered that church become a father to you. I'm with you. I'm staying with you. I'll sacrifice for you. I'll put my life on the line for you. But I will also say things to you that you'd rather not hear. I will challenge you. I will correct you. But because I see the bigger picture and I want what's best for you. That's what Paul says to them. And at the end of the chapter, he reminds them that some of them have become arrogant. And they thought Paul's not coming back to see us. We can do whatever we want. He says, I am going to come. And he talks about the kingdom of God and says the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. It's not about flowery language. It's not about celebrity status. It's of power. 
And as we've seen over these last few weeks, it's the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. That is the power that transforms everything. So just in conclusion, really, out of this passage, but again through this book of Corinthians and the next one, Paul reminds the church there that it is about God-given authority and not about worldly arrogance. Those of us who are leaders are called by God. We submit to him. We are accountable to him. Any kind of leadership that we have is a God-given authority, not a worldly arrogance. We are called to be sacrificial servants, not superior stand-ins. So one of the challenges of anyone who has a more itinerant ministry, isn't it? That you can stand up and be impressive in different places. So we should pray for those people. Some people are called to that role. We should pray for them. But, but they're standing in, aren't they? God calls most of us to stay with, to be sacrificial servants, loving each other in the community of God's people. And we're looking for a cross culture and not a celebrity culture. Cross culture. Sometimes weak, sometimes broken, always sacrificing, always about Jesus. And if it ever changes from that, then please go somewhere else. Because it's the church of Jesus and it's his work and his calling that we are called to. In a moment, we're going to share communion together and um, maybe that gives us a chance to respond If God has laid anything on our hearts that we need to deal with. I think Matt's got a song so that we can...